0: So welcome ladies and gentlemen to the next in our series of special conversations with uh, people who have recently published works related to Calvin, Calvinism, and the Reformation. I am delighted today to welcome my colleague and friend Richard Muller. Richard is a uh, long-time famous and well-known scholar of of Calvin studies. Um, He is the uh, P.J. Zondervan Emeritus Professor of Historical Theology at Calvin Theological Seminary. And he is actually currently the Senior Fellow at the Junius Institute for Digital Reformation Research. Um, And many of us have uh, benefited greatly from the Junius Institute and especially for the Post-Reformation Digital Library. But today we're gonna be talking about Richard's most recent book. So I'm gonna show it here. It's called Grace and Freedom: William Perkins and the Early Modern Reformed Understanding of Free Choice and Divine Grace, and it has just been published with Oxford University Press. So, Richard, welcome first of all, and congratulations.
1: Well, thanks very much for um, for having me, um, and enabling me to say something about the book. It's a real pleasure to get to get to chat with you again.
0: Absolutely excellent. So. You have written a lot on Calvin, and probably when most people think of you, they think of you writing on Calvin or surrounding Calvin, and now we're moving towards Perkins. So, so tell me a little bit what drew you to work on Perkins and on this theme of free choice and grace in Perkins' writings.
1: I think there, there, are, there are two sources for this. One goes back a long way. <laughs> One of the things that most people don't know about my work is that my first dissertation topic the one that I didn't write, was on William
2: Perkins.
1: (laughs) And I projected a dissertation on Perkins. And then I read Basil Hall's very curious piece, Calvin Against the Calvinists. And after I read Perkins, I said, well, this is just all wrong. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I remembered going to David Steinmetz and saying to him, this is just wrong. This is not a predestinarian system. I can write a dissertation about this. And his comment was well, nobody agrees with you, but if you, but if you're right, you have a good thesis topic.
0: All right then. Mm-hmm. And at
1: that point, I started to look at Perkins contemporaries. Mm-hmm. And that was really, in a sense, the, the end of the Perkins dissertation, because I found out that looking at, at a large group of folk, the, the, the result got even stronger, that yeah. there was something else going on here other than a kind of predestinary system. And that's what that's what got me going. I think my first published article was on Perkins, mm-hmm. and I've written on and off about Perkins, and I've cited him here and there. This time around, I was coming off of a book on on um, divine will and human freedom, and I had dealt mostly with with later orthodoxy, and I had purposely left out the issue of grace
2: mm-hmm. because
1: I was trying just to deal with the mechanism of the of uh, human choice, willing and knowing and willing. And I said to myself, well, now Perkins really wrote a nice treatise on grace and free choice. Why don't I write an article about that?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And as I started to write the article, things simply got out of hand. And I did the old thing of looking at Perkins contemporaries. And so the book is about Perkins in context, which uh, on this particular topic.
0: Absolutely. that's
1: That's how it came to be
0: it's nice to be able to bring that back in, isn't it? I mean, a starting yep. point that you can return to and find that actually it's not like anyone else has already done this in the between time. No, that's no, in
1: fact, that, that has surprised me. That Is the topic... there a
0: reason why there's been so relatively so little attention? Because, oh. I mean, you'd think that that would be a prime topic for people to work no. on.
1: No, I'm not sure. I think... Perkins, like a lot of other late 16th, early 17th century reformed writers has, has been neglected. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we've, we've, we've recognized that Calvin has been overstudied. And that, you know, we just, we don't need another book on the theology of Calvin or Calvin's theology of topic X, but as those keep on being produced, later thinkers for some for it's simply because they they are later and not not as famous get get ignored
0: it's interesting though because there's no real language barrier here i mean okay there's a perhaps if it's a published work you have to get used to the font and the vocabulary and the spelling but there's not the same um challenges perhaps as trying to read someone who's writing in dutch for instance or in german or something like
1: that there's also no resource barrier now that we have so many things digitized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, no, I, I, you know, I don't have a further explanation other than that he's a figure who has been neglected because of Calvin. Yep. Um, despite the fact that he's one of several really pivotal thinkers at the end of the 16th century who moved Reformed theology you know, out of the, the earlier Reformation model into something that is, yes, it's more scholastic in the sense of the method.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's, it's more in dialogue with the past. It has a lot clearer patristic referencing, much clearer medieval background referencing. Mm-hmm. And it's also, in Perkins' case, just beginning to encounter Roman Catholic second scholasticism. Right. So there's, there's a major development going on there. And that, that's one of the things that makes it quite interesting.
0: See, that's, for me, that's very interesting because I think there's always a danger when we look at the work of a particular individual to divorce them from their context. And what I've appreciated about your work over the years is your firm attention to context. So oh. um, in what ways would you say that Perkins built on the contributions of past theologians and which ones in particular do you see coming up again and again? If you read Perkins, are there certain names that he, oh, and yes. content that he goes yes. back
1: to? I, th- I think one, one of the surprises when you dig into Perkins, and, and this particularly comes off of the older scholarship, like Basil Hall's Calvin Against the Calvinists, where, where scholars would look at Perkins' golden chain and at the chart in it and say, oh, a chart of predestination. Beza wrote a chart of predestination. Perkins must be a Baisan. Mm-hmm. Beza was superlapsarian. Perkins is superlapsarian. Perkins must be a Baisan. But when you get into the details of Perkins' thought, he owes an awful lot more to Vermigli, Zanke, and Ursinus. Okay. And my own sense is that just just verbally, he is building on the earlier work, not only in Latin of Vermigli and Ursinus, but also of the translators. when, when, you, when you look to, to make the comparison broader, if you look at William Tyndall, writing yep. on predestination and, and issues like that, at least I get the sense that he's straining at English to try to make it say things that it really can't say yet, mm-hmm. that he could say clearly in Latin. And by the time you get to Perkins, the language is there. Absolutely. And, and that has to do with translating out of Latin, out of um, creating English words by, by way of simply bringing cognates over into English. Mm-hmm. And Perkins is able to talk about the whole topic in a very detailed English that wasn't available a couple of generations before.
0: That makes total sense to me because I've done some work on translations of Calvin into English and there's a total explosion. Of translations into English, sort of the starting in the second decade of Elizabeth's reign, you just yeah. see this huge influx and the amount of money it must have cost to get all these works out. Yes, and not just yes. Calvin, but others as well. And then that builds that vocabulary, that builds that way of thinking in English.
1: Yeah. And the Ursinus translation um, is, is is particularly, I think, important for Perkins. Mm-hmm. So although Ursinus and Zonkey really, and Vermigli look more infralapsarian. And on the, in the larger picture, Perkins is much more like them than he is like Beza. Interesting,
0: yep. Yep, and people have been maybe confused by a similarity of method in a sort of, <laughs> terms of the patterns of, 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 of thinking, but not so much in looking at what was actually being said.
1: And I think there's also been a tendency to to play the, whether they like the, the predestinarian system Theory or the Calvinist, the Calvinist notion or not, there's been an inordinate focus on predestination.
0: Yeah, yeah. And once you get away from that, then new things come to light. Yep. Now, when Perkins was writing on free choice and grace, um, obviously he was building on the thoughts of various theologians with whom he agreed. He could build on them from the Reformed context or Sinus Vermilly, and others. Who was he arguing against? Who was his foil?
1: Um, the, the major foil, I guess, would be Bellarmine, mm-hmm. and then a few other Roman Catholic theologians who have, who have argued at the time, Perkins is beginning to get a sense of Louis Molina and middle knowledge, which he doesn't like. Uh, he, he's also, though, interacting with some of the Dominicans, right? and I've noticed that he mentions bagnes and he also mentions Zumel. both of whom are strongly Augustinian Dominicans who despise the Jesuits. Mm -hmm. That he picks up on the Dominican side of things and uses what he's learned there to go after Bellarmine and the Jesuits.
0: See, that's interesting because how accessible would their works, the works of these Catholic scholars, have been to someone in England in Perkins' time?
1: You know, that's, that's, that's an interesting issue. And, and, the, and the fact is, in particular in the case of Zumel, he's citing him quite directly. Mm-hmm. So he has, this is, he's, a, I think, a Salamanca theologian. So Perkins actually has access to text. Interesting. You know, because it's, I mean, the censorship done.
0: was such that I don't think it would have been easy to publish them in England.
1: No, no. These are all imports, I'm sure.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: No, even the book, the book transaction correspondence networking is, is really quite fascinating. So do you think that, I mean, obviously it's polemical, there's the polemical side to all this, how, um, how accurately, how, how adequately, how appropriately does Perkins portray the Catholic position? I mean, is he being fair in his assessment or is he, would a Catholic recognize what Perkins articulates as the Catholic position, do you think?
1: I think, I think in a, in a Fairly large portion of the time, yes, they would mm-hmm. uh, i I don't think that he works at distorting their position to refute it, okay now he may lack nuance here and there, and he's quite ready to attach pelagian to them, whereas I mean, they're they're synergistic, but mm-hmm. they're not pelagian
2: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. and and they they do you know. There's, there's a debate that goes, or at least a, a scholarly discussion going on now about the origins of the term semi-Pelagian. And um, Azekhadrion, Irena Bacchus, and I have all written on it. Mm-hmm. And we're pretty convinced that it's a Protestant a term of Protestant origin that goes back to the, oh, early second half of the 16th century.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm convinced that semi-Pelagian and demi-Pelagian are terms that are invented by Protestants for polemical use that don't refer initially to the patristic debates. And the the post-Augustinian debates that are now called semi-Pelagian only come into play later. And and then there's a kind of a guilt by association going on. Mm -hmm. But the first instance of the uses seem to be purely anti-synergist.
2: Yeah,
0: which makes sense for their own context. So who was Perkins's intended audience? I mean, he's writing for um, other Protestants, presumably.
1: Yeah, yeah. Perkins, Perkins is, to my mind, very clearly writing mostly in the vernacular for the sake of Arguing the case for an English Reformed theology to a a literate English public,
2: mm-hmm.
1: in such a way that literate laity who know some of the theological debates as well as university folk
2: yeah.
1: uh, will find his his writing useful,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I'm you know I, and you know I, I I say in in my in my introduction that he really does function as an apologist of the Church of England. Yeah, you know I I don't find the claim that he is a Puritan, very useful. Surely mm-hmm. mm-hmm. he is an ancestor of much of what the English, the later Puritans write yep. and, and think. But that's because they're reformed also. Yeah. And in, in his own context, where somebody like Thomas Cartwright, who is very anti-establishment, very anti-Episcopalian, um, counts among English it was a beef in Puritans. Perkins just doesn't. Mm-hmm. Perkins, in his s- several, you know, maybe two, maybe three references to the prayer book, is quite content with the prayer book. Yeah. As far as we know, he said nothing negative about episcopacy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He he may have gone to one Presbyterian meeting at Cambridge, but he didn't make a big thing out of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that. what's so fascinating about this period in English theology or English church history is there are so many people who cannot be easily labeled as something. Um, that's right. They take what they see around them to build up the richness of their own views without feeling like they have to be in a camp, where later yeah. on it becomes much more divisive.
1: I think that's, that's, that's quite true.
0: Yeah. So you end your book with a wonderful quotation. Um, Grace, and I'm going to quote what you said, grace does not remove human freedom, it renders human beings more free. It's a wonderful statement. Um, can you unpack that a little bit for us? What, what do you have in mind here? What are
1: you, what are you no, getting I mean, at? In many ways, it's a, it's a very Augustinian statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Perkins thinks this way, and so do most early modern reform writers. If, if you ask, I, I used to ask students this question, in class. Um, I first ask, do you think you're an Augustinian or Pelagian? And they all want to be Augustinian, of course. And then I say, all right, you think you're Augustinian, but who is more free? Adam before the fall, who can choose between good and evil, or a, 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 a glorified human being who can, do, who can only do the good? And they puzzle a little while and they think Adam is more free. And then I, wa- I want to know well, then since God can only do good, is Adam more free than God? <laughs> and then when you when you don't want to say yes to that question, then it turns out that you've been a pelagian all along.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the, the 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 issue with with free choice that Perkins is dealing with is that. I think the basic mechanism of human choosing doesn't change particularly. Mm-hmm. If you if you if you go before the fall, does Adam have the ability to choose between eating a pear or eating an orange? I'll forget about the apple for a minute. Sure. You say, of course he can. After the fall, does a, a fallen reprobate, unregenerate person have yes. the ability to choose between an apple and orange? Of course, he, or orange. Of course he can. Mm-hmm. So that their mechanism doesn't change. Mm-hmm. But once you're fallen, any choice you make is sinful. Mm-hmm. You can't choose to do anything unsinfully.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, that is, that is for Augustine, an incredible limitation. There's, there's, a, there's a deficiency that's there. And, and sin, sin creates this enormous limitation on freedom that You're free to choose between apples and oranges, or apple oranges and pears, Mm -hmm. but you're not free to choose the good as good. Yeah. So that when grace changes you, you are actually free to choose the good as good again. Right. And the less capable you are of sinning, the freer you are. Mm Mm-hmm. that the 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 alteration of grace that occurs that makes it possible for you now to will the good enhances your freedom right that's that's the basic point renders you more free
0: i i think i think it's it's amazing and we could certainly spend a lot of time trying to figure all the ramifications out but uh, yeah i think and i think it's a point you're making throughout when we talk about free choice, we need to be very clear what we mean, because there's a lot of misunderstandings as to what that is. Yes. And you clarify a lot between the difference between free will and free choice, and free choice being the right, the, the correct term,
1: right? Well, I think oh, both terms are correct. You mm-hmm. you have a will that's a faculty that can't be coerced. Mm-hmm. So there there is a, a, a libertas voluntatis, a, a, a freedom of the will. But that means that the will simply operates without being coerced. It doesn't have anything to do with the interplay of knowing and willing, the will getting, an, getting objects to, to select, and then to choose to accept them or reject them. Mm-hmm. And free choice had to do with the acceptance or rejection of, of objects.
0: Right. It's sort of the next step, almost.
1: It's the next step.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure this book is going to find a lot of readers and I, I think it's gonna be a great chance for people to dive in to what are really important topics, right? Not even in just the late 16th, early 17th century, but all the way into today. I mean, this is a, a perennially interesting topic. So I think this is wonderful. And I'm so glad, Richard, that we had this chance to talk about this work. Well, thank you. Are there any <laughs> other points that you'd want to highlight for the audience or anything else you feel that they should
1: know? Well, I mean, I, I, do, I do think that one, one, of the, one of the issues that's going to come out here, as did with the previous book, is that there are, there are a fair number of modern, let's call them Calvinists, mm-hmm. who want to be very deterministic after the parent of Jonathan Edwards, mm-hmm. and they will be quite distressed that I insist that Perkins is not what you would call a compatibilist, mm-hmm. uh, because their understanding of of freedom is really a spontaneity and absence of coercion but they they assume that the will is always going to do one thing Mm -hmm. that given external causes given internal predispositions you will choose one thing now you've got a root ability to choose multiple things but only one of these will be chosen um and my simple contention here is that the older, call it Aristotelian, way of looking at faculty psychology Mm -hmm. assumes that a a free cause is not determined to one effect. Okay. And they assume that the will is a free cause. It is not determined to one effect. It, It has the possibility of willing multiple effects. And the fact is that Perkins and his contemporaries all say that once the intellect or understanding provides the will with an object, mm-hmm. the will can choose it, refuse it, or suspend its willing.
2: Right. So, so there's the,
1: the, more
0: of a choice. There's more, yeah. o- there are more options. Mm-hmm.
1: And th- that, that in no way implies that these people are so-called modern libertarians.
2: Mm -hmm. because they
1: also assume that the whole structure of causality is being run by God.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there there are two distinct levels of causation going on. God is willing all things to occur the way they occur, but he is specifically willing finite things to operate according to their natures. Right. And he is willing that we operate freely. Mm -hmm. And the end result Is a free choice that we make that is contingent on our part but in a sense is absolutely necessary or by way of divine certainty because God has willed the world to be the way it is. Right. You view that as paradoxical but that's the way they think.
0: Yep. Both simultaneously contingent and necessary when viewed on different planes almost.
1: Yeah and it's the the divine necessity is they will say it's a necessity of certainty Mm-hmm. because God knows what is going to occur in the world that he has willed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, of course, there's also, in Perkins' case, a kind of Dominican notion of what, they, what you would call physical pre-motion, that I can't do anything on God unless God is willing that I do it.
0: Right. So you have to have that motivator before anything can happen no. at all.
1: Yeah, no. which Calvin would talk about in terms of willing permission. God yeah. permits us, but he's not unwilling that we do it. He's actually willing us to do it in a permissive way.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: So based on having completed this project, do you have other projects that you're wanting to look at next, or where do you see yourself going from here?
1: Yeah, well, both, both this book and the previous one were side trips away from a project on natural theology. Yes. Which keeps on getting bigger. Uh-huh. and I have to find a way to cut it down in order to finish it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, yes. And these are one of these things that just keeps on growing no matter which way you go at it, right? Yes, yes. Well, it's nice to know you're not going to be, uh, you know, finding nothing that you can do anymore. You still have lots you want to talk about. Oh, yeah. I think that's great.
1: I, I think I, between my, my downloaded reading list um, from various different digital databases um, and all the notes and projects, I have probably about 300 years worth of work left to do.
0: (laughs) Richard, what can I say except we'll be thrilled to see these things come out as they go. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.